So we have been in the book of Mark here on Wednesday nights. We've been in the book of Mark going through uh, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ as told through the gospel of Mark. Uh, And last week we were in chapter 14. Pastor Tyler took you through that. Uh, And in chapter 14 he focused on Peter's denial of Jesus. So basically Jesus, he's betrayed by Judas, he's arrested, and Peter is watching Jesus' trial. All the other disciples, they just booked it out of there. But uh, Peter's watching Jesus' trial, right? And, and so these people come up to Peter and say, hey, you look familiar. Were you traveling with, with Jesus? Were you with Jesus? And first, you know, Peter's like, no, I, I wasn't. They ask again, I'm pretty sure you were traveling with Jesus. Peter says no. And they're like, I can tell you by your accent, you have a Galilean accent. And, and all of Jesus' disciples, you know, they, you guys were around in Galilee. And Peter's like, no, I have nothing to do with him. And then the rooster crows. And Peter remembers that Jesus accurately predicted that Peter would deny him, and Peter gets all sad, and, and so basically what we were just talking about last week was uh, a standing firm for Christ kind of in this culture or, or this world, which might not necessarily be the most accepting of him, or standing firm from him and, and not denying him even when everything looks difficult, and so that's, that's what we were talking about, that's what Tyler was talking about with you guys last week. Well, today... We are going to be closing out the book of Mark. Today we are going to be closing out the book of Mark. So please flip in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. We're going to be in verse 22 of Mark 15. Uh, and we are going to be closing out the book. Mostly mostly spending our time here in Mark 15 uh, this evening. So basically here's, here's just a recap of, of what's happening right now. So Jesus, he's been betrayed by Judas. Judas betrays him into the hands of the Pharisees, the Jewish uh, ruling leaders of the day. Uh, The Pharisees take Jesus. Jesus is put on trial. He is found guilty, and Jesus is then sentenced to death by crucifixion after being found guilty by the Jewish leaders. He is sentenced to death by crucifixion. So tonight, tonight where we're going to be in Mark 15... Uh, verse 22, we're going to be uh, following the account of Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, and, one is, and what is probably one of the most important stories uh, and well-known stories uh, in the church and honestly in just like the history of humanity, this is one of the most uh, frequently told and remembered stories that we're going to go through tonight. So here we are in Mark 15, verse 22. Read along with me. And they brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They offered him wine drugged with myrrh, but he refused it. Then the soldiers nailed him to the cross. They divided his clothes and threw dice to decide who would get each piece. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. A sign announced the charge against him. It read, the king of the Jews. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Ha, look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, save yourself and come down from the cross. The leading priests and teachers of religious law also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross so we can see it and believe him. Even the men who were crucified with Jesus ridiculed him. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. 
Then at three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elisha. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding up to him on a reed stick so he could drink. Wait, he said, let's see whether Elisha comes to take him down. Then Jesus uttered another loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the Roman officer who stood facing him saw how he had died, he exclaimed, this man truly was the son of God. Let's pause there and pray. Dear Lord, as we examine this story tonight, this true story that happened of your crucifixion, might you open our eyes and our hearts to the presence of your spirit in this place. Lord, show us something that we desperately need to see tonight. Guide our hearts, guide our minds, and may we focus upon you tonight. May we cast our troubles and our woes upon you, Lord. Guide us and teach us tonight, Lord. We pray this in your name. Everybody said, amen. Amen. Okay, so crucifixion was a pretty brutal method of execution popularized by the Roman Empire. Uh, it, It was a long and humiliating death. Uh, basically, you're stripped naked, and then you are nailed to a large wooden cross. It was uh, intended, crucifixion, it was intended to, to make an example out of the person crucified. So the Romans would crucify, say, like a, a revolutionary uh, who was trying to overthrow the Roman Empire or, or cause trouble. They would crucify them and say, well, okay, look, you want to follow this guy? You want to come against the empire? Here's what's going to happen to you. So crucifixion was mainly this way of making an example in a humiliating, long, excruciating way just to to kill somebody. And Jesus, he hangs on the cross, we can see here, for six hours. He's hanging on the cross for six hours, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. He is naked, he's in excruciating pain, he's being mocked, he's being spat on. It's horrible. So it causes one to think, well, what warranted this? Why would they put Jesus up on the cross? What did he do? Well, the Bible teaches us the main reason that Jesus was crucified was because Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. See, the reason Jesus was crucified is that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. And that's what we're going to focus on tonight. We're going to focus on Jesus' claim that he was the Son of God. Because this, this claim that Jesus was the Son of God is the central and most important claim in Christianity. Every single thing a Christian is, everything a Christian lives for, believes, and, and strives for, all hinges on this claim that Jesus made that he was the Son of God and that he rose from the dead. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 17. You don't have to flip there if you don't want to, but Paul puts it really well here in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 17. He says this, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Verse 15, more than that, 
We are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if in fact, there are, in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. In verse, verse 17, here's where it all comes together. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. It's the basis and foundation of our very souls. And so our main topic tonight that we're going we're to focus in is, is this. How can we know that Jesus is the Messiah who rose from the dead? Because that is a bold claim. An incredibly bold claim. And, and I don't know if any of you are like me, but I'm, I'm a natural skeptic. I was an atheist when I was a teenager, uh, and a, a lot of my skepticism fueled that, and, and it was very tough for me to read the Bible and, and believe these sort of things. And, and so I don't know if you're a skeptic like me in the room tonight, but what I want us to do here, I want us to look through different resources or, or different examples and different stories, different historical accounts to, to really see, it was Jesus the Son of God. How can we know that Jesus was the son of God. How do we know he just wasn't some crazy person who went around claiming he was God and then got nailed to a cross and started this whole random movement? So we're going to focus on three main things tonight. We're going to look at three main things. We're going to look at what, uh, what Jesus has to say about him being the Messiah. We're going to look at what the Old Testament has to say about Jesus being the Messiah. And we're going to look at what history has to say about Jesus being the Messiah. But first, I'm going to drink water because my throat really hurts right now. So just awkwardly watch me do that for a second. I've had this cough for like three weeks and I think I'm dying, but, you know, I'm still standing. (coughs) All right, let's do this. By the way, I'm going to throw a lot of verses at you tonight. And I was thinking about making slides, but there's just a lot. So if you're listening to me tonight and you're like, oh, those are really interesting verses, I would really like to, you know, find out, you know, get those written down so I can go and study them on my own time. If you, if you want, like, the verses I list here tonight, just come to me afterwards and I can, like, email them to you or something. But so just heads up, going to throw a lot of verses your way, uh, but I'll make it fun and entertaining, I promise. And uh, if I don't, you can have your money back. That was a joke. You can laugh at that. Give me a pity laugh. Okay, thank you. All right. I think some sort of win here tonight. All right, so uh, the reason for Jesus' crucifixion, it, it's kind of a hotly debated topic uh, in kind of like the secular world. Uh, a lot of people debate the reason for why Jesus was crucified. Uh, but like I said, the most logical explanation is that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. Uh, claiming to be the Son of God was blasphemy, basically like insulting God. It was considered that uh, by the Jewish people. If you were a human man, who said, I am God, uh, that was a crime punishable by death. So it makes sense uh, that uh, the cause for Jesus' crucifixion was claiming he was uh, the Son of God. And so we can actually see multiple times through the Gospels that Jesus does, in fact, claim to be the Son of God. Some people will, will tell you, well, Jesus, he never outright says he was the Son of God. Even in the Gospels, you, you never really see Jesus say, oh, I am the Son of God. That was just an invention by the church in order to to get people to believe what they were trying to push. Uh, But we can actually clearly see here in the Gospels multiple times that Jesus claims to be the Son of God. 
Uh, he accepts the title of Son of God when Peter refers to him as such in Matthew 16, 14 to 17. In John 10, 30, uh, Jesus claims equality with God the Father, stating that they are the same. Jesus calls himself the Son of God when he's speaking to Nicodemus in John 3, uh, verse 18. And he straight up, publicly, amongst the Jewish people, he straight up says, I am the Son of God, publicly in John 10, 36. And again, and this is like the most, I think, uh, definitive example, is when Jesus is on trial before the Sanhedrin, which was this Jewish ruling council. They had Jesus arrested. They brought him before, him, and they ask him. The high priest asks Jesus, okay, here's the charge brought against you, that you are claiming to be the Son of God. So I'm going to ask you point blank now, are you the Son of God? And Jesus responds, and he says, I am. Simply, right there, he confirms it before the Jewish ruling council. And you better believe that this trial was documented. Right? This was a very important trial. And there were witnesses there who heard Jesus straight up confirm that he is the Son of God. And you can find that in Mark 14, 61 to 62. It doesn't make any sense to say that Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. There is no reason, okay, why he would have been put to death, like, in any other way. Whether he was a Son of God or not, okay, it's very clear that he claimed to be the Son of God, no matter what you believe in, all right? No matter what you believe in, because they, they would not have pinned him to the cross if he didn't make such a bold claim. They pinned him to the cross to basically make this point. They said, if you try to say you're God, this is what's going to happen to you. Jesus clearly stated that he was the son of God, which was the leading factor in his crucifixion. Now, it was, the, it was a correct claim. It was a true claim. But the Jewish uh, rulers did not believe that it was. Furthermore, Jesus predicts his death and resurrection with 100% accuracy multiple times in the Gospels. Mark 8, 31 to 38. Matthew 17, 22 to 23. Matthew 20, 17 to 19. Matthew 26, 1 to 3. John 12, 23 to 24. These are just a few examples of times when Jesus accurately predicts his death and resurrection. Okay, so he, he spells it out pretty clearly. I am the Son of God. I am going to die. I am going to rise again multiple times throughout the Gospels. So that's what Jesus has to say on the matter. He says, I am the Messiah. So now let's adjust our focus. Let's dial it back, and let's look at what the Old Testament has to say. Let's look at what the Old Testament has to say. There, there's about a, a 400 or so year gap between the Old and New Testaments. So there's many centuries past between the time of Jesus uh, and the time of the Old Testament. And we've got to remember this. The Bible might be told in a, a variety of genres. The Bible might be told through historical narrative, who, through, through poetry, through letters, through a million different ways of communication. But the Bible tells one coherent message. The Old Testament and the New Testament work together in perfect harmony. The Old Testament sets the stage for the New Testament. It, it bugs me when people try to say that the, the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. It's the same God. But in the Old Testament, God is setting the stage for the Messiah to come. 
Jesus says in Luke twenty two forty four, he says, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's the Old Testament. Again, in John five thirty nine, Jesus says that the scriptures, the Old Testament, points directly to him. So let's test that then. Let's see. Does, 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 the, does the Old Testament actually point to Jesus? Well, there are over a hundred messianic prophecies, so prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament. Don't worry, we're only going to go through a few of them. But there are over a hundred prophecies about the Messiah throughout the Old Testament. And each one of these prophecies came anywhere from, from 1,000 to, to 400 years before the birth of Christ. All right? Centuries, even as far back as a millennia before Jesus appeared on the scene, these prophecies were already written down. Numbers 24, 17. Numbers 24, 17 says that the Messiah would be a star from the line of Jacob. That means the Messiah would be an Israelite. Jesus was an Israelite. All right? Pretty clear. 2 Samuel 7, 8 to 16 says that the Messiah would come from the line of David, King David. If you read the first chapter of Matthew, you see a genealogy that clearly states that Jesus comes from the line of King David. Psalm 22, verse 1, says the Messiah would be forsaken by God. And it's actually this verse that Jesus quotes in verse 34 of the passage we read together at the start of our time. Psalm 22, verses 7 to 8, goes on to say that the Messiah would be mocked by a crowd. We see Jesus get mocked by a crowd in verse 29 of the passage we read. Psalm twenty-two eighteen says that the people would cast lots for the Messiah's clothing. Again, we see this exact thing happen in verse 24 of the passage we read tonight. Psalm 41, 9 says the Messiah is going to be betrayed by one of his close friends. He's betrayed by Judas, one of his disciples. Psalm 69.21 says the Messiah would be given vinegar to quench his thirst. And this exact thing, again, 100% accuracy, happens right in the passage we read, verse 36. You guys hanging in there right now? I'm throwing a lot your way. I know. But you're smart. You can take it. I believe in you. Isaiah, Isaiah 7.14 says the Messiah would be born of a virgin. All right, so, you know, it's Christmas time. We know the stories, we know the songs. Clearly, Jesus, he was born of a virgin. Isaiah 9, 1 to 2, says the Messiah would be a light in Galilee. It says the Messiah would be a light in Galilee, and Galilee is the region in which Jesus performed a majority of his miracles. Isaiah 53, 9, says the Messiah would be buried in the grave of a rich man. Jesus was buried in the tomb of Joseph, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a high-ranking member of the Jewish council, a very wealthy man, and Jesus was buried in his tomb. Zechariah eleven twelve to 13 says the Messiah would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. The exact amount of silver that Judas received for betraying Jesus was 30. Zechariah twelve ten says the Messiah would be pierced, and that's how he would die. Well, that prediction came hundreds of years before the Roman Empire popularized crucifixion before the Israelites even knew what crucifixion was. Zechariah 13.7 says the Messiah's followers would abandon him at a very important moment in his ministry, and that's exactly what happened after the disciples abandoned Jesus when he was betrayed and arrested. So that was a whole lot, 
I know, but I, the point I'm making through, through throwing all these verses at you is that there are so many precise predictions about Jesus' life, death, and ministry, and each and every single one of them became true. Ed Heinsohn, a Bible scholar, he, he said this. He, he kind of put the probability of all these different uh, predictions coming true and, and being fulfilled in the life of one man. He, he says this. He says, the chance of all these prophecies being fulfilled in the life of one man is one in 84 followed by 131 zeros. Uh, so it's basically, that's, that's really unlikely. I could fill that, that one, all those zeros on this entire wall behind me. Incredibly unlikely that each and every one of these prophecies that the Old Testament predicted centuries before the birth of Jesus would be fulfilled. And every single one was fulfilled by Jesus. Every single one. It's crazy. And when, and when I read that, it blows me away because it really shows how the Bible is this one coherent message, this, this one coherent story, how the Old Testament sets the stage for the New Testament. All right, so we know that Jesus clearly states that he's the Messiah, well and good. That the Old Testament seems to say that Jesus is the Messiah, but now we're going to step out of the Bible for a minute. Okay, the Bible is pretty clear on its stance. Jesus is the Messiah, but let's, 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 let's go out from the Bible. Now, the Bible is a historical book. All the accounts the Bible talks about have been fulfilled in, in history. It recounts history. So, so let's, let's take a moment. Let's go from the Bible to, to history and see what history has to say on the matter. Now, again, if, if you're a skeptic like, like, like I am, this is for you right now. All right? This is unbiased history, not tampered with, straight-up facts right here. Now, the Bible is a fact as well. Don't get me wrong. But these are even facts that those who aren't religious will accept. So, um, Gary Habermas is a, a, another Bible scholar. He was a professor at the university I went to. He, he developed this thing called the minimal facts approach. Now, the minimal facts approach is this uh, way of, of understanding Jesus' resurrection from uh, a, a secular, more secular standpoint. So what it does is it, it provides six different facts, historical facts, th- that the most skeptical, like atheist like scholars will will accept as true like these are historical facts that are proven nobody is debating this all right this has been this is like as true as like the american revolution all right that everybody accepts as factual so there are six facts about jesus crucifixion and what happened after uh that all people accept the first is this jesus died by crucifixion jesus died by crucifixion uh, scholars tend to say that the two most certain facts about Jesus' life were this. It was that Jesus uh, was baptized by John the Baptist and that Jesus was crucified. So regardless of what anybody believes in, we can all agree that there was indeed a man named Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago and was crucified. That's the first fact. That's the first historical fact that all people accept. Number two. After the death of Jesus, 
the apostles, the 11 remaining apostles, they were convinced, stone cold convinced, that they had encountered the risen Jesus. All right, they were 100% convinced. Now, some people will say, oh, well, they were just hallucinating. You know, they, they had seizures and saw him. And, and, like, I don't know what kind of, like, group drugs they were doing to all, like, see the risen Jesus and be so convinced that he was there. But, like, that, that's, like, some next-level stuff, all right? If you, like, take a hit of something and all of a sudden you're like, oh, my gosh. It's that dead guy just hanging out with us and telling us to start a world religion. Whoa. So I highly doubt that Christianity was started on just a really bad drug trip. That's all I'm saying. I highly doubt that. You see, because here's, 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 here's fact number three. Fact number three. The apostles were so darn convinced that Jesus rose from the dead that ten of them literally died preaching the resurrection of Jesus. The only apostle who was not martyred was John, and John was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the resurrection, where he eventually just passed away of old age. All right, I'll tell you one thing. Con artists will go to great lengths to push a lie. All right, liars and dishonest people will go to great lengths in order to convince people that something is true when it's not. But I'll tell you the length that they will not go to. And that's giving up their own life. Because a dishonest person will do a lot of things, but a dishonest person will not give up their life to push their lie. And yet, all the disciples were willing to die to spread the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is historically proven. There are historical accounts of the deaths of every single disciple because they were preaching the word of God, again, with the exception of John. So that's fact number three. Number four is that this, the the resurrection of Jesus, that was taught almost immediately, all right? Word started spreading almost immediately after he was crucified. So just a few days after Jesus was crucified, people were already going around saying, oh my gosh, Jesus, he rose from the dead. He appeared to me. I saw him, and they were spreading this and pushing this message not long after he died. Religious traditions usually take a long time to form. But this message, this word of resurrection, was spreading like wildfire not long after Jesus was killed. So that's number four. Number five is this, that James, James was the brother of Jesus. James was the brother of Jesus, and James originally did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He thought his brother was crazy. He thought he was a weird person. He was probably like, serves you right that you got crucified. You are crazy. Well, apparently, James believed he also had a run-in with the risen Jesus. And he was so convinced that his brother rose from the dead that not only did he acknowledge him as the son of God, but he also wrote a book of the Bible, and that's the book of James, which we're going through on Sunday morning. Shameless plug, come Sunday morning. Love to see you there. But James, he once believed that Jesus was not the son of God. He, he would not listen to him. He thought his brother was crazy. But apparently, the risen Jesus appeared to him, and James was so convinced that he wrote the book of James and acknowledged Jesus as the son of God. And lastly, and this is my favorite point, it's the point of, of Paul. So Paul was one, we know his story, he was once Saul. He was a Pharisee. 
Saul describes himself as a Pharisee among Pharisees, okay? And, and let me describe why, why that's important. A Pharisee had lots of power. Pharisees were very rich. Pharisees were very respected. Pharisees had honor. Paul was also a tent maker, and, and we might not think of that as like a lavish uh, job today, but back then, tent makers would make tents for the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire did a lot of military conquests, and they needed tents to put up when their armies would go out places, and, and they were willing to pray, uh, pay a pretty penny for these tents. So not only was he super rich, but he was super honored by his society, by his peers, and I personally believe, and, and people debate this, and this is just me giving my own opinion, I personally believe that Paul was married uh, originally. I believe he was married when he was Saul. Uh, I think all, most, most Pharisees were. Uh, but Paul goes ahead and he denounces all of that. Because on a trip to go and persecute some Christians, because that was his favorite pastime. I mean, Saul was like so against Christianity, he would kill Christians, persecute Christians. He was like basically terrorist level against Christians. And on a routine trip to Damascus to go and get rid of some Christians, Paul changes his entire tune. And Paul also becomes convinced that he met the risen Jesus. He becomes so convinced that he met the risen Jesus that he rejects his entire life as a Pharisee. That honor, that wealth, that prestige, even his marriage, possibly. Paul put all of that away. He gave all of that up so he could spend the rest of his life preaching the resurrection of Jesus, writing a majority of our New Testament, going everywhere, talking about the resurrection, getting shipwrecked, getting beaten, getting stoned, and then eventually dying because of what he believed in. So, so tell me, why? <laughs> why? Why would somebody who literally has e like everything materially they could ever want, all the wealth, all the honor, all the power, why would they give that all up for a life where you don't even know if you're going to survive the next day just to, to share a message which isn't true? Okay, you, people don't do that. That doesn't happen. We have not seen that before. It would make no sense for somebody to do that unless Jesus Christ actually appeared to Paul. Unless Jesus actually appeared to James. Unless Jesus actually appeared to the apostles. Unless Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead like he said he was going to. And remember, each one of the facts I just shared with you, even the most skeptical even the most atheist-type scholars, okay, will say that was true. That happened. Paul actually did that. The apostles actually did that. Jesus was actually crucified. They'll agree to that. All right? That's the, and, of course, it's not their stamp of approval we're looking for, but the point I'm making is this. Those six facts, all of them, are historically proven to be true. There is no debate about those. And again, all of those facts defy basic logic unless, of course, Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. And so I know I've been, I've just, I feel like I've been up here just like motor mouth throwing a bunch of like facts and crazy like 
you know, almost like school in here. Um, but the point I want to make is this. I don't know where you've been. I don't know what you've struggled with. But I'll be the first to tell you in this room that I have struggled with believing what the Bible says is true. I have struggled with doubts so much so that there was a point in my life where I didn't even believe in God. And when I became a Christian, I was about 16 years old. It was kind of hard for me to, to, to get behind some of this. It was tough. Doubt is a normal part. Okay, doubt is a normal part of our walks as believers. It happens to all of us. But I want you to know this. The God you follow, the, the God we sing to, he is true. He is real. Jesus Christ, who lived 2,000 years ago, he is God. He did rise from the dead. History tells us. The Bible tells us clearly. These things don't happen by chance. These things don't happen randomly. This was God's plan from day one. And I, and I go back now to, to that verse out of first, those, that passage out of 1 Corinthians where Paul is talking about the resurrection of the dead and, and what that means for us. That if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then our faith is futile. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then you're still stuck in your sins. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then there is no hope. Well, Jesus did rise from the dead. So our faith is not futile. So we are still not stuck in our sins. That there is indeed a hope that the story of Jesus Christ and the things he did, the words he said in his resurrection, it's true. It's all true. It's clear and before us. And the sins that we've committed, the bad things we've done, even if we've been in this room and we've rejected God completely, all that weighs us down and separates us from him. It doesn't need to have any power over you. Because if we just call upon the name of Christ, if we just seek him, and accept Jesus Christ as the Son of God and follow him. All of that, all of the sins that weigh us down, all of the hurt, all of the pain, he will be there to help us through it all, every single part of it. He will be with us and he will give us peace for eternity with him. When I was preparing this sermon and researching these things and, 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 and looking through these facts and verses, it honestly increased my own faith. It was so encouraging to see this, that Christ had a plan in store, that he was who he said he was. And that's a claim a lot of us, you know, we have to accept on faith. But just know that the evidence is there as well. And so I hope you're encouraged here. Or maybe I just bored you for the last, like, 30 minutes. Uh, if that happened, then I'm not really sorry, because I'm talking about, like, eternal salvation, so it's like, yeah. Um, but just be encouraged. Know that Christ is who he said he was, that he cares for you, and that if you just call upon his name, he will be there with us. I'm going to close with this verse, these, these two verses out of Romans. This is Romans 6, 8 to 9. And it's written here. 
Uh, Paul says this. He says, and since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your son Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that we can believe with full faith and full certainty that Jesus is who he says he is. That you are who you say you are. Thank you, Lord. And I I pray if anybody in this room is dealing with doubts, skepticism, cynicism towards who you are, God, that your spirit just come and comfort them. Show them that you are true. That what you did is not some story passed from generation to generation but a real thing that happened. The definitive moment in the history of humanity, God, how you saved us, how you love us. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done, for who you are. Our faith does not come, Lord, in what scholars say are true. Lord, our faith does not come even from what a few verses might say. Our faith comes from who you are. Our faith comes from God and God alone. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. And thank you for sending your son Jesus to come and die for us and raise from the dead so none of us, if we call upon your name, will ever experience true death. Thank you, God. That's in your name we pray. And everybody said, amen.